0: Unveiling the secrets A-list copywriters use to make themselves and their clients millions. This is the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. All right, copywriters, welcome back to the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. David, how you doing today?
1: Doing great, Nathan. How about yourself?
0: I'm doing fantastic. And uh, this is an episode that I've been waiting a long time to do because it's one of those things that kind of mystifies and and escapes a lot of copywriters. And like always, you're here to demystify and lay it all out for us. So I'm just going to turn it over to you. What do we got coming up for the copywriters today?
1: Well, we've got something pretty special, I think. I want to take you back for a second to June 23rd, 1965. It was on that date that a group out of Detroit called The Contours released the record which became big hit. The tune was written by Smokey Robinson and Bobby Rogers and it was called First I Look at the Purse. Many other groups covered this song afterwards including the Jay Giles Band. And it's a very interesting song but it only leads me into what I want to talk about today because when it comes to critiquing copy, I have my own version. And actually, I don't have a whole song yet, just a title at this point, but well, maybe someday I'll write the song and then I'll release it first, world exclusive on this podcast. <laughs> and Nathan, we could call it, you and I could do it as a duet. You could bring back your old you know, singing career. But for now, let's just deal with the title. It's First I Look at the Hook. and. It could be called first I look for the hook because it's not always there. And any piece of copy, your hook is so important and we'll get into it, what it is, some great examples, how you can find your own best hook for any copy you're writing. And I believe this will be a revelation to a lot of people. But first, I have an important announcement from your conscience. Copy is powerful. You're responsible for how you use what you hear on this podcast, and most of the time, common sense is all you need. But if you make extreme claims and or if you're writing copy for offers in highly regulated industries like health, finance, and business opportunity, you may want to get a legal review after you write and before you start using your copy. My larger clients do this all the time. Now, let's get to the meat of the matter, which is hooks. Uh, Hooks are basically the difference between whether people get interested and pay attention, keep reading, or whether they go, hmm, okay, and they move on. They delete, click away, throw something in the trash can, et cetera. And a hook is so important. You know, in music these days, they say everything is the hook. And a hook in music is not all that different than a hook in copywriting because it's memorable, it's concise, it's emotionally meaningful, and it grabs a person's attention.
0: So for the hook, where would people need to, I know we're going to get into this, but where would people need to place the hook? Is it kind of like, it sounds like the hook grabs you at the very beginning and hooks you in, or... Is there more to it than that? Like you said, with music, where the hook is every aspect of the song nowadays.
1: Yeah, well, um, that's a good question. I wish I could give you a black and white answer. I'll I'll tell you that most of the time the hook is at the beginning, but sometimes the hook is more of an idea, and, and you build your copy off of the idea of the hook rather than the actual words you've used to articulate it to yourself. Sometimes. The hook is the mechanism. The hook is what the product does or how the product does what it does differently. So I would say for the most part, your hook is going to be your headline or your opening sentence or something very early on. But the most important thing is not where it goes, although that was a good question, it's just not how it works out in real life sometimes it's the effect that it has. The fact that it just grabs the reader and won't let go like a barbed fish hook.
0: Okay. And I know that you came from a journalism background, and the hook is also something that people talk about when they talk about writing uh, news articles or writing blog posts. So when it comes to copy versus journalism, um, can you kind of, lay out maybe the similarities and the differences between a hook in a news story or a blog post versus the hook in a piece of
1: copy? Great question. So if there are any journalists like or ex-journalists or people with degrees from Columbia Journalism School, like my friend Donald Burns listening to this, hi Donald, um, they may find this a little offensive, but I'm going to uh, say it fully knowing that. Even though journalism is protected in our constitution and has an important function in our society, from a copywriter's point of view, journalism is entertainment. Now, it may be very serious entertainment about matters of state or world security, or it may be, you know, more lighthearted entertainment like the guy who ate 48 hot dogs on July 4th. Um, but the news is essentially storytelling. Um, Sure, sometimes in journalism you'll have practical how-to articles or important reviews, uh, you could call that content. The difference that I'm trying to point out here is that journalism is to inform people and to, to get them excited. It's not usually designed explicitly to get them to do something, like to buy something. So because of the purpose of journalism being fundamentally more focused on informing and or entertaining, the hook there is going to be a little different than copy. The The requirements for a hook in journalism and really in music is to get someone's attention and to get them to look forward to at least an interesting and hopefully an entertaining experience in listening to the song, watching the video, watching the TV news, reading the newspaper article, etc. With copy, you're doing two things. You want to get their attention and interest, but you want to also set the stage for desire or fear or some powerful emotion that's going to move them through your copy so that they'll be more likely to take action when they get to the call to action
0: okay and you kind of mentioned earlier you said that sometimes the hook can be part of the headline or sometimes it's separate from the headline um can you kind of delve into that a little bit and when it is separate from the headline i guess when it's the same thing as the headline what would be some examples of that and then when it's separate from the headline um what would be some examples of that
1: Sure. Well, I've got a number of mini case studies I'm going to go through, and, and I'll point that out as we go through them. Uh, it, it's a great question, and the, I know that for a lot of people, the hook is still this mysterious thing that they're trying to wrap their brain around. So let's let's dig into some of the examples. My first info product, late 80s, early 90s. It was an audio program called Let Your Clients Do Your Selling. Now, a couple things. That wasn't really a good headline because it, it was a little too far into an understanding of the whole, the whole scenario um, to be really effective. I, I needed other headlines to sell it. It was a great product name and a terrific hook because what it did is it reframed getting referrals in a new way. It basically implied that your clients were gonna be an unpaid and cheerful sales force for your own business. And it was very interesting how I came up with this. I was talking to a friend of mine, very artistic guy, performance artist. Uh, His entire sense of business could probably um, be written on a three by five card with lots of room to spare, and that was fine. You know, um, I didn't expect him to know a lot about business. He was great on stage, and people loved him, and and he did fine pursuing his uh, career the way he pursued it. But I was a business guy, and I'd just come up with this new product, and I was trying to explain it to him, and he didn't even understand sales, much less referrals. Right. So in in the in my frustration of trying to explain this to him, I think I blurted out You see, if you have clients, you don't have to sell to new clients because you let your clients do your selling for you. And he goes, Oh, I could hear the light bulb on the other end of the phone (laughs) go off. And I thought, Wow, that's good. And it was actually when I hit a a metaphorical wall, just trying to explain my idea to him that I came up with my hook. And I sold a lot of those. I got featured in national magazines. I didn't sell nearly as many as I could have because I really didn't know much about copywriting at the time. I didn't understand it well. But um, I think maybe it was my failure to do very well with that that made me determined I needed to learn copywriting. So it served its purpose. Nevertheless, the point I wanna make is that I came up with this hook in the course of conversation and you know, to your question earlier, Nathan, it didn't really go in the headline, but when people saw the title, especially people who were trying to get clients or customers and having a hard time of it, they thought, oh wow, you mean I could actually, and they didn't know about referrals? or they didn't know how to get them. And that that was the whole point of this, that there were 17 different ways to get referrals inside this product. So uh, that's that's the first example, okay?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And there's a sort of similar thing that Ted Nicholas gives as an example. Now, Ted is... Uh, he he's not really very prominent these days. He was a great direct marketer in the 70s, 80s, 90s. He's kind of retired, living over in Switzerland now. He's probably in his 70s or 80s. But Ted, his main claim to fame and the way he made most of his fortune initially was he would show people how to form a corporation without a lawyer. That was actually the title of his book. He sold a lot of them, and then after they read that, they would still think it was too hard, and he'd say, hey, we have a service who will do it for you, and it's still cheaper than a lawyer. And so with his front end and his back end, he made a lot of money. Now, these days, of course, you can just use Legal Zoom or any number of other services, but that's an industry that Ted started. Well, that's not the hook. The hook was... One day he was in Houston. I remember him telling this story very well. He was in Houston on a radio show, a call-in radio show. And he was, you know, answering questions about this. And I think the interviewer said to him, okay, Mr. Nicholas, or okay, Ted, but why would anyone want to form a corporation in the first place? And just off the top of his head, he says, well, having a corporation is really the only way left for the little guy to get rich anymore. And within about 10 seconds, the call board just lit up. People went crazy over that idea. And so he thought, hmm, I think I have just stumbled upon a good hook. Now, one thing I want to point out is it's not only that he said it, it's that he paid real close attention and he noticed what happened. And it was the same thing with me. I maybe wasn't paying as close attention as Ted Nicholas, but when I couldn't explain this idea to my, we'll call him a consumer friend who was not really a, you know, studied business guy, and then all of a sudden I said, let your clients do your selling. Wow! All of a sudden it was, you know, it was like one light bulb went off instead of all the lights on a radio switchboard. Okay.
0: <laughs> so out of those two examples, it sounds like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like the hook has a lot of overlap with uh, what copywriters call the big idea, both let your clients do your selling and the only way left for the little guy to get rich. Both of those also seem like they could be classified as the, as the big idea of a piece. Am I, am I reading that wrong?
1: no you're you're not reading it wrong. I think big ideas are sometimes a little uh more whimsical or abstract or conceptual. um My favorite big idea is one that has to do with some financial opportunity investing in oil that's based in France, and Agora used the headline and the big idea. Oil under the Eiffel Tower, right? Well, there's not really that much oil under the Eiffel Tower literally. but um, you know the big idea is it's it's more conceptual and they can make a really good case that yeah, I mean r- right right there in Paris is this great opportunity to make bazillions of dollars investing in oil related businesses. Okay, um, now some some big ideas are definitely more literal, um, but you know m- most of my study of the big idea comes from the extensive copy reviews, and we we've gone over just in in the time that I've been working as a consultant to Agora Financial, we've gone over a hundred pieces. Um, a lot of the big ideas are they have some curiosity and and they're not literal they're not lies but they're um indirect and uh these these hooks are very direct i mean think think about where we started first i look at the purse there's no mistaking what the guy's saying i'm looking for a woman with money right <laughs> um you know the only way left for the little guy to get rich that's there's nothing real indirect or metaphorical about that, so I would say, as a general rule, hooks tend to be more you know feet on the ground and and water is wet and rocks is hard and um that big ideas. Are more conceptual. They're they're a little abstract, not way abstract. They're they're concrete enough for people to understand them, but but often they're metaphors or concepts that lead into something else.
0: Okay, awesome. Thank you for clearing that up for me.
1: Sure, it was a great question. I've been thinking about that myself, and I'm glad you asked me because I hadn't been able to have the conversation with myself that I'm having with you. So that's good. When you have some copy and the performance of the copy is mission critical, who you going to call? Not Ghostbusters. They don't do copy critiques last time I checked. A lot of people, from the most advanced to the up-and-coming copywriters, reach out to me. I do copy critiques. One client, Brett Alcorn, has hired me 20 times. Yep, 20 times. That's because on the very first critique I did for him, he doubled his conversions on a video sales letter. Every month, I do a handful of critiques for GKIC members. These are copywriters and small business owners who are trained and experienced, but they need another set of experienced eyes to go over their copy to take it to the next level. One A-lister told me I go over a copy like an IRS auditor. Now, I wasn't sure whether to take that as a compliment or not. But he assured me it was. He said, I can find the one flaw or several flaws in copy that no one else was able to and make winning suggestions on how to fix them. So when you need a copy critique, just go to GarfinkelCoaching.com and click on the services tab GarfinkelCoaching.com for a critique. Thank you. And now back to the show. Let me tell you another story. And this is where I helped a client. Who was much smarter than me and probably smarter than ninety nine point nine percent of the people in the world, but maybe not as experienced in developing hooks um, as I was, and his name was Stuart Lichtman, and he came to me about fifteen years ago and he had a book based on a process he had used both for himself and for individuals and for startups in Silicon Valley, these were sort of unusual. They were funded by big corporations. They weren't your your typical Apple or um, Facebook. These were things when Xerox would say, hey, we wanna get a team together at Xerox Park in Palo Alto to do this, that, and yet." Anyway, Stewart had quite a track record in business, and he was able to get creativity and monetary results in ways that were quite impressive. Anyway, Stuart, well, Stewart was an MIT grad, so he was already in Brainiac, and he, <laughs> he had had a fight with MIT because he wanted to major in four times of engineering at once. So <laughs> I I just can't even imagine where his mind went. But um, he did have this method, and he had a, a very subtle and indirect and and a nuanced name for it, which I don't even remember at this point. So I started interviewing him. I started asking him how you could use this method, and it turned out you could use it to lose weight, you could use it to enhance your relationship, you could use it to write music, you could use it to um, win races as a you know stock car. I mean, you could use it for anything. And I thought, that's not so good. Um, You need to have some kind of focus. And so I said, well, Stuart, could you use it to get money? And he told me this amazing story about an idea he had, and he needed some funding. And he just used his method. And it's going to sound a lot like the secret or the law of attraction, but his method was maybe a little more systematic and you could even say a little more rigorous. And he said he just used his method and I don't know, within a day or two, someone from halfway across the country called him. This was way before the internet when this happened and got the guy on the phone. And within two more days, another guy came on a plane with a check for half a million dollars to fund this, um, particular venture he was talking about. And I said, so you can use it for money. He said, well, yeah, I just told you, I said, are there other examples? And he just keeps reeling off all the examples. And I said, okay, why don't we call your product? How to get lots of money for anything fast, you know, sort of the duh. I mean, people with he had two degrees from MIT. People with two degrees from MIT usually don't explain things in such stark, simple terms. But he liked it. He was smart. He was a good marketer. And he said, yeah. And so he sold over a million dollars worth of that product. And it did work for other people. Worked for me. I was able to use the method. It's too much work for me now, <laughs> his method. Um, but <clears throat> it definitely works. And so... There was an example of um, being a detective, being an interviewer, turning over lots of rocks to find a hook. And, you know, I I didn't know that this method would be good for creating money. But once we talked about it and once he told me his story and once I, I looked at the product from that point of view, I saw that was the natural hook. So there's another example. Did we use that as the headline? I don't think so. I, I think we used it to build the headline. I I honestly don't remember at this point. But you see how that was kind of like the master bullet that we pulled out of all of the features of this thing. Because there were so many other things you could do besides get money with it. But I had a pretty strong sense that the market would relate to that. and you know, be drawn to that. And he'd make a lot of sales. And sure enough, he did. He he built a whole business based on that. It was a multi-million dollar business. He developed more advanced programs. He had a a coach certification program. It, It really became a new career for him.
0: So all of these examples, let your clients do your selling, the only way left for the little guy to get rich and how to get lots of money for anything fast. They all basically are something that grab your attention and make it really hard for you to stop reading past that point.
1: Right. Well, uh, you want to keep reading, but they make it make it very hard for you to, you know, go anywhere else. You, you need to find out more. That's okay. right.
0: So what do all of these have in common? Obviously, everyone that you mentioned, they have getting money in common. But uh, what else do they have in common?
1: Well, this this may sound a little flip or, um, you know, a, a, a little um, off-topic for copywriting, but it's not at all. They came from paying attention, you know, in, in the first two cases, just looking and listening. I mean, I was listening to my own words as I was telling my friend about, let your clients do your selling. And Ted Nicholas was looking at that switchboard and when he saw it light up, he recognized a pattern that indicated he had a really good headline to use, a really good hook and headline to use in selling his product. In the third case, it was a little different. It was more something that came out of research and digging and asking questions, seeing if you could look at something in a different way. But ultimately, um, when I found it, you know, just, you know, paying attention to that and, you know, almost paying attention to, you know, my, my inner voices, my my experience, my intuition saying, yeah, that's going to work. That's something that's both true, doable with this product and something a lot of people will be instantly interested in. Okay. Now, I have another example of a hook that is not about money, but it is about one of life's other necessities beer. And some listeners to the copywriters podcast will be familiar with this. If you've read scientific advertising by Claude Hopkins, you probably will. If you haven't read it, it's a good book for you to check out um, because there are so many good copywriting lessons in there. Okay, so this is um, what happened when Claude Hopkins was working for Lord & Thomas, the advertising agency in Chicago, and he was assigned to do a campaign for Schlitz beer in Milwaukee. Uh, I was talking to one of my mentoring clients who's from Wisconsin, and we were actually talking about this particular situation this week. And he said, Schlitz isn't even a good beer. I said, I know. but. Nevertheless, the the marketing was able to, well, you'll see what the marketing was able to do. What Claude Hopkins did was he went up to Milwaukee, he talked to the people in the factory, he had a complete tour, he asked them about every little detail, and at one point he said, so you wash the bottles that come back, you steam clean them four times, and... The plant manager said, well, yeah, but everybody does that. And what Claude Hopkins said is, uh-huh, but nobody else is saying it. And so he used that to start his campaign about, you know, a healthful beer, a beer that's produced under sanitary conditions. We go the extra mile. We, I'm paraphrasing here, we, want, we steam clean the bottles. We steam clean the bottles for time. And Schlitz in market share shot up from number 15 to number one. So in that case, again, it's a lot of patient investigation without a whole lot of attachment to what you find out, being willing to be surprised, Uh, you know, an openness and a curiosity until you land upon the one thing that's going to work that you think will work, that you can test.
0: I remember reading, I want to say it was in My Life in Advertising. He was talking about a similar story where he was brought in to uh, write a campaign for a paper mill for somebody that was creating paper stocks. And uh, he was talking about how their process, it was a very similar story, their process of how they picked out um, what type of trees would be used, how they went through the process of making the paper, how they went through through and ensured that the paper would be good quality, Um, he said, well, we should talk about this in your advertisements. And the paper company said, well, every paper company does this. They'd all laugh at us if we talked about this. They'd, They'd all know that this is just common stuff. And he goes, well, does the consumer know this though? And they're like, well, no, not really. And he goes, well, who are you selling to? Are you selling to other paper companies or are you selling to the consumer? And that was like a light bulb moment for me where it's kind of like the curse of knowledge where we think, well, everybody knows this, but no, your consumer doesn't. Maybe everybody in your industry knows it, but just like with uh, Schlitz Malt Liquor, they probably said, well, everybody does this, but the consumer didn't know that. And since they were the first one to tell about it, like you said, they were the first ones to tell, that positioned them as being separate from all the other companies out there.
1: Yeah, and and also another thing about social embarrassment you've got to be willing to have some of your competitors laugh at you or criticize you or scorn you or try and shame you or shun you because they're not going to like the fact that you're doing something they think is uncool and you're succeeding with it while they're, they're stuck in their rigid social walls inside of those walls so that they can't do it. So you know, you you don't want to be too absurd. I mean, the thing is it's, it's got to work and it it can't get you banned from, you know, the internet or advertising or whatever, but sometimes it, it pays to, to go outside of what everybody knows to think about what does your consumer know and what do they want and what would impress them and what don't they know that if they did know they'd want to buy it.
0: Nice. So One of my favorite things about doing this podcast with you, David, is you always have uh, kind of simplified or templated ways to go about doing the things that we talk about. So when it comes to creating a a hook, do you have any tips for how to come up with a a hook quickly?
1: Well, I believe that you'll come up with the best hook through this patient watching and waiting and analysis and exploration, you know, like we've talked about with those four examples. But if you've got to do it in a hurry and you don't have the luxury of time, then you can use the USP shortcut, which we talked about six episodes ago in episode 38. And if someone wants to um, you know, know more about that in depth, then you should go back and listen to that episode. But I'll give a quick review of that. There are basically three steps. You make a list of what people hate about your competitors, and you find the one thing highest on the list that you can do the opposite of, and that becomes your hook and your USP. And the example i given a lot more depth on episode 38, USP Shortcut, is BMW which oh maybe 10 years ago 11 years ago 12 years ago was really the only major car manufacturer that would offer you you know a complete warranty except for tires and windshield wipers for the fourth, for the first 4 years after you bought the car um, That's subsequently changed. It's pretty common these days. But that became their hook, even though they had lots of other things they could have promoted. And I think that may have been one of the things that turned them, it, that moved them, say, from being a luxury brand to a luxury slash consumer brand. And they're just huge right now and very successful.
0: Nice. So as a kind of a recap, um, what are what are uh, what are some of the things that, um, as you're doing your research, can stand out and, and make you realize, hey, this might be a good hook?
1: Yeah, great question. So, if you're not going to do the USP shortcut, if you can take the time and the care to actually look and see if you can find something like like people found in the examples we talked about, here are some questions. First of all, ask yourself and take some time to think about this: What have you or your client overlooked that's simple and emotionally compelling? For example, we steam clean our beer bottles four times before we reuse them with Claude Hopkins. And then what's a memorable way to say it? And you just gotta try a lot of different things till you find one that works or several that work and then you pick one of them. Then finally, what lights up the boards? What gets a lot of response from people? And Ted Nicholas had a literal example when he was in a radio studio doing a talk radio show. And he said the magic words, the only way left for the little guy to get rich and the board slid up literally. Um, he knew he had a good hook there. So those are the three things. Um, you know, what have you overlooked? What's a memorable way to say it and what lights up the boards.
0: Nice. All right. And, I think that uh, one of the things, especially with that, uh, what lights up the boards, um, kind of, if it, if it, uh, if as you're thinking about it or as you're writing it or as you're reading it, if it does that to you, if it lights up your internal boards, if it makes the light bulb go off in your own head, um, there's a good probability that if you're in tune with your market, it'll have the same uh, effect on your reader.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point, and, and that's a good way to look at it. But, you know, it's, it's provisional. You know, I mean, Ted Nicholas had actual marketplace response. If it lights up your own internal boards, then you really need to test it in the marketplace before you commit
0: to it. Nice. All right, David, this has been another fantastic episode. Thank you so much. What can we expect next time when we come back with another episode of the Copywriter's Podcast?
1: Next one is how to write with muscle.
0: Ooh. Sounds exciting. All right. Copywriters, we hope you enjoyed this. And if you want to get more, head on over to copywriterspodcast.com. Make sure that you're subscribed on iTunes. Leave us a rating and review. We'd really appreciate it. And we will catch you next time.
1: Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Before we go, a quick question. Would you like to have me as a guest on your podcast? Let me give you an easy way to contact me about that. We've put up a form on GarfinkelMedia.com, and it won't take much more than a minute to fill it out. So if you'd like to have me on your show, just go to GarfinkelMedia.com and fill out the form. That's GarfinkelMedia.com. Thanks, and see you next time on the Copywriter's Podcast.